Hello, wonderful listeners of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. It's November, which means that in the US, we're celebrating Thanksgiving at the end of the month. It's a season to express our gratitude, and a great way to express gratitude is to pay it forward. And this is why I have chosen to support a wonderful initiative by Will Reynolds, a leader that you will hear from in the month of December, and somebody who in his life has actually shown and walked the walk of paying things forward. I am supporting his initiative two ways. First of all, I have made a donation, And second, I'm going to turn the microphone over to him to tell you what he's doing. After you hear that, I'm going to quickly come back and tell you where you can make a donation to support it. Howdy, friends. I'm Will Reynolds, and I'm sleeping outside on November 19th to raise awareness, but also to raise a boatload of money for homeless youth in the city of Philadelphia. And the reason why this is important to me is we have a cutoff date. When it's your 18th birthday, you're technically an adult. So that means like if you're 17 years old and 364 days, we have support systems for those youth. If you're one day later, there's a lot fewer resources and we throw those youth into adult homeless facilities with a lot less government support. And that is why I'm sleeping outside because the Covenant House, for whom I've been sleeping outside for 12 years to raise money for homeless youth in our city, they focus specifically on that 18 to 22-year-old youth who's probably still more like a kid than they are like an adult. And now they just don't have as many resources. So that's why I'm sleeping out. Would appreciate your support. Thanks so much. As you can tell, it's a wonderful cause. Let me just share what resonated with me on this and why I chose it as something to support this month. The first thing is the fact that it is local to his own community. The second thing is that he's actually doing an action that puts him on the same level as the people that he's helping. And so it shows a tremendous amount of empathy. Third and final is the fact that, as you have heard, he's been doing this for 12 or 13 years, which shows a tremendous amount of commitment and consistency. So if you want to help to donate, go to bit.ly backslash helpwill1122, spelled B-I-T dot L-Y backslash H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Yes, Will's name is spelled with only one L. So once again, it will be H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Thank you so much. Any donation helps. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we spoke to Chris Lynch, CEO of Scale, about the connection between the Sex Pistols, venture capital and tech companies, and about his efforts to bring more transparency in the governance of equity compensation for VC and private equity bad companies. For the next two episodes, we're going to go on a little journey in the past. Many of you are new listeners, so I wanted to share some of the best bits from the early episodes of the show. Today, the focus will be on leadership traits, and I am featuring my first four guests, Raj Kapoor, Kathy Dyer, Rishatta Bakawala, and Dave Edelman. We start with Raj Kapoor. Raj has been the CEO and co-founder of Snapfish, one of the first online photo services sites, which he sold to HP. He then worked in venture capital at Mayfield Ventures and went on to be an investor, CEO, and co-founder in FitMob, which merged with ClassPass. From there, he became the chief strategy officer of Lyft. 
He was there at the time of the interview, but he recently left to start Climactic, a VC fund focused on climate tech. In this bit, Raj talks about how in the process of merging FitMob and ClassPass, he had to learn how to let his ego go and how that played into his choice to take a role where he was not a CEO at Lyft after having been a CEO and founder in his two previous ventures. What's your leadership style? Like, how, how do you manage people, you know, when you think about it? You know, it's evolved. I don't think it was that good early on. <laughs> and I hope it's gotten better. I would say the parts that I stuck with, and I can talk about some of my mistakes too as a leader, but the parts that I think have, have worked are being direct, setting clear goals, and being involved at the right time, but not all the time. So brainstorming, letting the team go, coming back, helping out to remove obstacles, really being a support and a coach and taking the back seat versus the front seat. I think when I first started venture capital and I was used to be the CEO of a startup, for several years, I probably got feedback from entrepreneurs saying, smart person, but I don't need someone in the front seat with me. <laughs> and uh, this guy seems like he wants to be in the front seat. So I learned the hard way. Uh, after losing some deals that um, I had to become a coach. And part of that is just becoming confident of yourself. Because a lot of times when you try to be in the front seat along with an entrepreneur, it's because you have your own insecurity that you need to prove that you are smart. You need to speak. You need to tell people what to do. You mentioned earlier that when you sold your last venture, you know, maybe some vulnerability stories that maybe this is a good time to share some of those. Yeah. So my second business that I started was called FitMob. And it was, in short, a fitness marketplace. And we were trying to really invert the whole industry of fitness, where it was about signing up to a piece of real estate, a gym, and never going and paying them. And what we wanted to do is sign up to a, a, an amazing person and a tribe of people, a mob of people, and you would be together to achieve your goals. And the place was fungible. You could work out anywhere in the neighborhood. What we found was exciting vision didn't work. Too complex. Couldn't get the uh, trainers to really be entrepreneurs. They wanted the certainty of an hourly rate, as an example. And we had to pivot. We looked at what else was out there. and We found this other company that had pivoted into, and it was called ClassPass. And it pivoted to basically being more like open table and filling up spots in existing classes right, rather than trying to create classes, create new inventory. And uh, it was a lot easier to scale. And there was a need because there was a class, it was a yoga class, it was only half full consistently, and they would be willing to bring other people in at a lower rate. And people wanted to buy classes cheaper. So if you could package it in the right way, it's a no brainer, it, it works. And it did work, it took off. So we copied them. And we pivoted into a model that worked. We were more West Coast focused. They were more East Coast focused, but they had started a year before. And we grew, they grew. And it was a cutthroat battle. And it felt a lot like Uber and Lyft, which I saw at the same time. But it was a smaller market. And it was a lot more damaging. And it didn't feel like there was going to be two big players the way that Uber and Lyft did. It didn't feel like it was going to be a duopoly. So I was speaking to my counselor, who's also my lawyer, but he's also a really good advisor in general. And he said, look, I think you need to combine. And the only way that you're going to do that is if you swallow your pride. And even though you have more experience and you were a VC and you started a successful company and 
you just need to go and tell her, the founder, that you copied her and that you think that this is the right way to do it rather than the both of you wasting a lot of time and energy trying to fight each other for a smaller piece of a smaller pie. How was that conversation? You know, it was hard. Uh, I had to let my ego go. And I went there and I talked to her. And it was a huge elephant in the room. And as soon as I said it, like, look, you did a great model and we copied you. She was able to just relax and be her authentic self. And I was able to be my authentic self. And we talked more about how we can go do this together rather than trying to fight about who was right and who was wrong. And did you have to basically seize control of the whole joint thing? And that was the other piece, which is I'm ready for, I want you to lead this and I'll do whatever it takes to make this joint company successful. And it was tough because I had to then effectively work and commute to New York from San Francisco and did that for six months and helped out. And it was hard because we were competitors. And so walking in the office for the first few weeks felt more like you were a competitor walking in than people on the same team. And building trust was even harder. The company now is doing well. You know, I moved on, but uh, there's a number of people that are still there that are thriving from the FitMob days. As you were telling this story, it struck me that you've gone from being a CEO for a number of ventures to, you know, in this situation, you were no longer like the number one person and even at Lyft. How was that shift in role for somebody who was so used to be like the main leader? Yeah, I would say that um, it's really good that I did that class pass experience before I came to Lyft. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good that I got some of that harsh feedback as a venture capitalist. Because it helped me understand that you don't need to be the one always in front or right to have impact and and really to experience, to be content. I think I, I came into Lyft with a different perspective, but I'd still say, look, Lyft is a, grew at a, at a pretty rapid clip that I didn't expect and is a much larger company now. So I'm constantly reinventing myself that way too. And still receive feedback that I, I, I could have done better in certain areas. So now it really, I'm getting more and more comfortable about being the coach and having the team run and realizing that, you know, the success and the happiness that you feel is going to come from within you versus from external gratification. So taking all these experiences, are there like two or three tips that you could leave for our listeners? Yeah. You know, I think. The last year and a half have been years of introspection for me. I, I attended something called the Hoffman Process, which is uh, a retreat for about eight days where you go deep into yourself and you really get to understand what is the authentic you and what are the, your patterns that you inherited from people like your parents and how can you separate that out and not be your patterns and how can you be a better person? There are always things that we do that we're, we're not happy about. Doing that personal work is the fundamental basis that will then allow you to have great relationships, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a work relationship. I've just seen it reverberate in so many ways. So it's first tip is actually yourself, which is do the work. However you want to do it. It doesn't have to be this. It could be something else. It could be meditation. Whatever it is, try to connect and, and do that. Two, I would say, is if you can have that sense of vulnerability, it means that you will be comfortable hiring people better than you 
which means that you will ultimately be successful in almost anything you do. The minute that you make yourself the rate limiter on everything because you feel insecure is when your odds of success go down. My second and fourth guests were two people with a tremendous impact on my career, how I think about leadership, and how I think about running a business. I spent six years of my career at Digitus, an interactive and direct marketing agency. As in many service businesses, I rotated through different teams, but I spent significant time with each one of these two leaders. They were both senior leaders at the time, and they were running significant portions of the business of Digitus, but each one of them had tremendous careers before and after Digitus. I'm going to start with Kathy Dyer. Among other roles, she was the CMO of Advanta. She was the Chief Talent and Transformation Officer for the whole Publicis Group. She was a Global CMO and General Manager for the Merchant Services Unit at American Express. She also invested a significant portion of her life using her talents to give back. Specifically, she spent over a decade on the Board of Directors of Care. And that is where we start from our conversation about what leadership traits are important to Kathy. So as you think about your leadership approach, what are some of the lessons you incorporated based on your experience working with care and in some of these countries all over the world? Mm -hmm. Well, first and foremost, I think is the notion that you must see and treat absolutely everyone with dignity. Uh, it's not the case for a lot of these people. So I, I think that's true at absolutely every level. Number two, you must see everyone for their potential. You must assume that if given the chance, people actually don't want to hand out. What people really want is the chance to latch on to something that lets them improve themselves, whether that's in the developing world or, or in Boston. And, you know, back to measurement, to the, back to the Ecuador program, program, very specific tracking uh, programs, uh, tracking mechanisms were put in place to measure participation. You know, did the women come for this? Did they, you know, what, what was the health of the women and the children? So when you put something together and you actually really methodically and systematically measure its improvement, then, you know, the country adopted it uh, across the board. So all of these things. And so there's a heart and a spirit, but there's also a discipline to an approach and to making sure you've understood the outcomes. Yes. Yeah, so if we were to, after all this conversation, summarize quickly your leadership style and then the traits that you look in, how would you define that? Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to give you, someone actually gave me feedback once to, describe how that person experienced my leadership. And it was a Digitas example. So maybe I'll just offer you those words. Um, you used the word front and, and rear, or I think earlier, but someone said to me who was a leader, led a team on one of my clients. She said to me, you know what, Kathy, here's, here's how we experience you. You bring us together as a group and you lead us and get our input and we have a clear strategy. We know where we're going and why. So you're out in front initially. Then what happens is you will go back to the rear to let us do our thing, to have credit for what we're doing, to own it, to get nicked up or to have a success. So you're in the rear, not micromanaging us. She said, but there's an important middle. And that is you're at the front of the boat, then you're at the rear of the boat. She said, but the minute we hit storms and choppy water, you're in the boat rowing. 
You don't abandon us and say, but I let you do that and you failed. You're actually in there getting it done and sorting it out and there's no blame game. So, uh, you know, I was flattered. I thought maybe that was a, that that was a nice way to depict it. And I think it is the way I try to operate. <laughs> so Yeah. Because intentionality is important, right? As a leader, there is a point where you need, when you realize that if you want to be an effective leader, you need to define who you want to be as a leader. Exactly. And there was a second part. Did I leave out the second part to your question, Dina, or did that answer? Well, no, well, the second part is like, you know, obviously, if you're looking in people, you know, what leadership traits you're looking for in in people. Yeah. So for me, honestly, it's really clear to me what I look for. I look for energy. I look for ambition. I look for integrity. And importantly, consistent with this whole conversation, I look for what I call, and I use this term with people, whole people. Yes, I want people who are genius at their jobs or good at their jobs, whatever the case may be. But back to my example of care or whatever it may be, it is my belief that people are more effective and more seen as a role model, an aspirational leader to to their own teams if there are multiple dimensions, not just, oh, so good at strategy. Right. But to say, you know, I want to be involved in those other things. And it also gives people permission to um, and an invitation to participate Um, broadly. You encourage them to use some of their time for a service, which is a growth example for them and great reputation for our firm. Yeah, that's all true. And I think I I have to say some of it, I can say I've experienced directly (laughs) working with you. You know, part of growing as a leader is going through crisis. I think like you, you probably really see who you are as a leader when you go through a challenge in time. So I'm wondering if there's a personal crisis or a failure that you face and you know how that shaped you as a leader and what were some of the challenges and, and I ask you to be vulnerable. Yeah. Well, and let me say this, because I was thinking about um, vulnerable. I was reading your, um, you know, reading certainly a little bit about before we came to our conversation. And I would like to share with you sort of my brand, if you will, of, of, of vulnerable and how I am that. Because I've had this example at least twice at Digitas with people who on my team were leaders and they got great results. But there was something in um, vulnerability that I think they needed to learn. For me in the workplace, the way that manifests itself is that people don't realize people need to be needed. And so what I mean by that is if there was someone who worked in one capability and got a broadened role to lead a cross-functional team, that person brought insecurities and wanted to master all the functions in which he was an expert and then not need the leaders. And guess what? You don't have a team when that happens because they ask to be reassigned. So I think um, people are needed. I couldn't do anything alone. I could, if, if I had 10 different capabilities on my team, I might be qualified to lead two of them directly as a subject matter expert. And guess what? That means eight. No. So for me, the vulnerable, it's, it's my brand of vulnerability is to make sure that you've understood that your job is not to do everyone's job or even be able to, but that you're not perfect and that you're not setting out to do that. So just as, you know, as a story, I, that's one thing I say. It's, it's, it's to me a twist on vulnerability, but it's the mistake that I've seen two successful people make. And also people didn't want to work on their teams. They wanted to bring what they knew to the team and to be needed. 
All right. So we're going to close with this one, the leadership section. So if you have like three leadership tips that we can give to our listeners and something that they could put in practice, things that have worked for you, or, you know, if you say like three things that they should do. Yeah. So um, I did think a little bit about that. We had the chance to touch on one of them. And that is, I think good leaders master feedback in an advocacy mode, right? I'm on your side. I'm helping you be better. Back to courage. So learn to give feedback so that people want it from you. They don't dread it from you. Number two, the other thing that I would say is if you take a position on some topic, you have a point of view and you're entrenched, if you are exposed to new data or just to another influential point of view and someone is able to persuade you with argument that perhaps your, your answer isn't the best one, you need to learn to graciously immediately retreat You should not make excuses. You should be glad to be enlightened. And I think that takes a big person. Pivot. When you learn you should pivot, you need to pivot and not save face. And I think especially today in these times. And the third thing I would say that I've learned from a couple of big CEOs who I've worked for, and that is we will always have in the workplace tensions with peers. We may have strained relationships. We may have dust-ups. There may even been people who've done us wrong, <laughs> outright malice. And what I would say, as I've watched others, you need to let that go. If you hold on to it, you will only aid yourself. And the second thing that will happen, not only are you eating yourself up from the inside, but there may be in the future scenarios where you might do genius things together and enjoy it. So harboring it, forecloses on the chance for a great relationship, for great outcomes. So be the big person, do yourself a favor and let it go. Thank you. I think that's a precious lesson that too few people leave by in reality. Like everybody says like, oh, I've let it go. But then underneath, it's hard to let it go. And I think like the other thing that is really, they really appreciate the second point that you made a lot of leaders say, oh, I don't like to be on my team because I'm, everybody's smarter than me on the team. You know, but then when an idea that is not their idea comes up, very few have the ability to say like, oh, there is actually somebody smarter than me on my team. And she's 22 years younger than me. <laughs> You know, and the other thing in this world of big data and analytics and AI, there's constant discussion about confirmation bias, setting out to ensure that my view is substantiated. So, you know, make sure that that's not how you're forming or holding a position on something important when, in fact, there's a better way. I didn't have the fortune to work personally with my third guest, but he is globally recognized as one of the leading thinkers in the world of marketing and advertising. Rishat Bakawala started his career at Leo Burnett in the early 80s, went on to start one of the first interactive agencies, and spent over a decade in C-level roles at the Publicis Group. He was the Chief Innovation Officer, the Chief Strategist, and the Chief Growth Officers. For many years, his blog, his newsletter, and his podcast have been must-read, must-listen content for people interested in the future, not just of advertising, but also of work and business in general. His wonderful book, Restoring the Soul of Business, has been called by The Economist, possibly the best book on stakeholder capitalism. In this segment, Richard talks about how he measures success in his own life, and then what makes a great leader. 
I want to bring it back to leadership. And specifically, you talk a lot about how learning is important and how a great leader or a great boss is somebody who is truly invested in the learning and the development of their employees. So in that spirit, as you think about your leadership style and the traits that you look for in leaders you work with, what are two or three tips that you could share with our listeners who are actually working on developing their own leadership style or just becoming better leaders? So I will give it to you in three very quick answers, right? So the first is recognize that to be a good leader, you try to have as many of these five characteristics that I mentioned, which is you have to know what the hell you're doing in your field. So you have to have a sense of craft and expertise. And that's number one, which is capability. You want to have integrity. You want to basically have empathy. You want to think about other people. Vulnerability means willing to say you're wrong and inspire people, especially when times are tough. So you want to try to say, how do I learn how to do those? Then the second one is to recognize that all of us are human. And just like we have the story and the spreadsheet, we also have silicon and carbon. So silicon is basically, you know, we live, as I say, in a data-driven silicon digital age, but we are carbon-based analog feeling people. So similarly, every one of us has the ability to be a good boss or a bad boss. And under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, something shows. So under a lot of pressure, some of our bad boss things might come out. And sometimes under the best of services, maybe the good boss comes out. But so it isn't that all of us are either angel or devil. We basically have both of those characteristics. But the good bosses tend to be angel 85% of the time. And usually when they are the devil 15 or 10% of the time, they don't do things that are like really devilish. They do things that they are not proud of, but they very quickly acknowledge that they made a mistake or someone tells them or they've created a character. So if someone says, what the hell are you doing? Michelle? You're like an idiot right now. Why are you behaving like this? So if they've actually built a team, someone will stop them even before they go completely into the dark side and say, why are you doing this? Or they'll say, oh shit, I'm sleeping over and I come back. But so what happens is the good bosses, right, have these capabilities on the other hand, the bad bosses had we up the capability is to watch out that you don't do that. So part of that is there are four characteristics that we all have, and I have displayed at least three of them in my career, uh, not the fourth one, okay, as best as I can tell. But I've done the th three. Uh, and I'm not saying one is worse than the others. So one is a narcissist. Okay, so the narcissist is... is it's all about me, and if I wasn't here, everybody would be going to hell in the handbasket. So we all have that, which is one. The second one is basically the micromanaging fiddler. Now, I tend not to have that at all. In fact, I have the reverse, which is I have a very hands-off style. But if I'm under real pressure for a new business pitch, I might become, compared to my normal style, a little bit of a micromanaging fiddler. Which The third one is the Oscar contender. So the Oscar contender is I don't know how to communicate with someone, so I do it through like emotion. And in, and some people yell and scream and slam doors, and I just like don't talk to anybody or just move away and things like that. So it's like the silent treatment, right? Which is, and the last one is the double-crossing assassin, which I don't think I've ever done. Which is you basically tell somebody one thing and you go tell their boss the other thing or the client another thing, and nobody knows how to trust. I have clearly done the first three. As far as I know, I haven't done the last one. You know, we we know, but 
I'm perfectly capable because I've thought at times to basically stab someone to death behind their back, but that I've not done it, which is a different thing. Um, and they deserved it, but I still didn't do it, which is which is a fine thing. So you have to second do that. The last one, so one is you know clearly understand what the good boss is. Second is recognize that even if you're a good boss, you may have these bad characteristics and you don't control them. The third one is this, which is my particular style. And my particular style is that you need a team and good teams are like sports teams. And sports teams have sets of rules, but the reason they win is because of three things. They have a disproportionate share of talent. So a team that usually wins has better talent on average, okay? Not every time, but that's one. Second is they are unified. So they have the culture, so their talent doesn't work against each other. They go to each other out. And the last one is they have a common goal. So disproportionate talent unified against a common outcome or a common goal. So I've learned that from sports. So what I basically do is I say, I got to figure out how to attract the best talent which I've told you that I now realize they want growth and they want connectedness. So I make sure I give them that. So I said, okay, rule number one, I've got disproportionate share of talent. Number two, I work very hard at the culture. And the culture that I basically create is a culture of freedom. So the idea basically is you should be free to try things, make mistakes, say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. And as long as it's not like, absolutely stupidly racist or sexist, right? You can say what you want. And and sometimes you say things, you say that was a stupid thing to say or someone says it's stupid and that's fine. But it's not like you are like doomed for your career, etc. Because in it, if you are capable of taking risks and making mistakes and innovation, and if your intent is not to hurt anybody, but you come up with some stupid thoughts, that's perfectly fine because you need to be... So I create a culture where people feel safe and free. And it's very hard, which is you can say what you want, but everybody needs to feel safe. And that's the second one, which is important. And that's a big thing. And then the last thing that I basically do, which is important, is I spend a lot of time backing up my people. So if a client would call me and say, you know, Dino sucks, okay, I'll say two things to the client. Number one is, have you told Dino he sucks? And they say, no. So I said, I would recommend that first tell me why he sucks, but why don't you tell him why he sucks, right? And after you tell him why he sucks, then you either call me or he'll come and talk to me anyway and say, my client called me and I sucked and I don't suck or I do suck and here's what I'm going to do. But I said, don't call me, you call Dino, okay? Second is I said, I'm not certain that Dino sucks. I actually think Dino's really good. But if he sucks, you should tell him. And you can tell me, but I'm not going to tell him. You need to tell him because I'm not going to go tell him. And he'll rectify it because in most cases, I don't even think he's made a mistake. He'll explain to you what happened. But if he doesn't, then I will talk to Dino and then Dino will get back to you. So in effect, what basically happened, the clients would basically say, this guy believes the people around him are really good. And my thing was to everyone around me, if it's a yellow alert, I don't even want to know. You go fix it. Okay? If it's an orange alert, and you know it's an orange alert, sometimes you don't know it's an orange alert, but if you know it's an orange alert, 
I would like you to come to my office and tell me there's an orange alert and tell me what you're going to do to prevent it from being a red alert. Okay. And I listen to you. And if there's a reason I think it won't work or have a better idea, I'll tell you. Otherwise, it's your problem. Not your problem. I know what's going on. Know what happens. When it turns into red, A, I know what the problem is. B, if I had a better idea, I would have said so. (laughs) Right? But then me and the person goes and starts fighting the red alert and brings it back to orange. Right? And we don't spend any time. You never told me. And at the same time, the client basically has already recognized that this guy is probably aware of what's going on. And he's still letting my lady or man handle this. And so guess what happens? People basically say, you're going to back me. So they'll sometimes come to me and say, I think this is actually a yellow alert. It isn't an orange alert. I'm taking care of it. But I just want to tell you, like, what do you think of this? And my stuff is, it looks fine. Don't worry about it. And when a client or anybody basically believes that you are backing up your people. Exactly. They actually believe you run a great team. And your team basically won't let you down because they said this guy is going to go and take the bullets for us. My fourth guest is Dave Adelman. And as I said earlier, he had a tremendous influence of my career. Aside from his time at Digitus, Dave has been a partner at both BCG and McKinsey, and he authored two of the most important marketing articles published by the Harvard Business Review. During his tenure as CMO of Aetna, Dave was named by Forbes one of the world's most influential CMOs, and he's currently part of the Harvard Business School faculty. In the bit you will hear, Dave first talks about how he started forming his own leadership, and then discusses the transition in going from managing a fairly homogeneous team in a top-tier managing consulting firm to running a much more diverse cross-functional team at Digitus. So in, in the process of forming leadership, there's what comes natural to you, and then as you move through your career, there is a point where you need to get intentional to sort of articulate who you are as a leader, how you want to present. What are some moments in your career where you started sort of going from the natural to the realizing what your leadership style was? Yeah, there were two things that I'll talk about. So one was fairly early in my career. I was at BCG and there I had written this article on segment of one marketing. And the natural next thing was to market it and get publicity for it. Well, that meant getting on stage, uh, becoming a salesperson for the idea, for BCG, for myself, all of the above. That was something new. (laughs) Normally, when I was on stage, I was performing. It was, you know, from theater, it it was, you know, mostly scripted and very clear and rehearsed. And here I was going to have to really get up there and do something that really stretched what I was trying to convey to the audience. And so I had to be very deliberate about it. Uh, I had to think carefully about the way I used words, the kinds of stories I told. I deliberately didn't want to come across as self-serving sales. But what I did want to come across was, here's a set of ways of thinking about the world. They have a credibility to them. And here's some examples to that. And there's a way of taking that view of the world and turning it into opportunity 
And here are some stories about that and leaving it there and not necessarily going, you know, for the hard pitch, but being very deliberate, especially in how I use stories to convey something to the audience. And so that was, that was very deliberate. And it was a moment where I, I had to think through what I was trying to do with my audience. And then I think that the second one was um, as we started building Digitas, it was my first time where I was getting a growing cadre of people on my team. I was building a strategy and analytics team. Um, it was growing in numbers. And it was the first time where I was becoming a leader of a large growing group. Um, and that required more than just simply working with a small team where I had before just hands-on team. I still had that. But I had to also think about how I mobilized a broader group to get a sense of purpose, to feel energized about our mission. And so I had to deliberately bring energy to higher level things than the specific project at hand and had to provide oxygen, not just in the room, but oxygen in terms of just in general, the job opportunity that people were now taking on more broadly. Uh, and so I had to think about you know, the way I wanted to do that. Again, the kind of language and settings. You know, One of the things I did, which was for the first time, was actually getting um, every six months, get the whole crew together. Eventually grew to 200 people um, where we'd get together and people would have an opportunity to show their work. We would even do speed dating for people to get to know each other and create a lot of different fun ways for people to engage and get a sense of the bigger whole. Um, and that was deliberate, but it was still from the notion, you know, of bringing oxygen, bringing energy, bringing passion, bring my own into the room and trying to get others to feel it too. So actually, it's interesting that you're talking about building the team at Digitas because one of the topics that I'm interested in is the idea that it's very easy to say we want to build teams with talent and you know, we only want A-type personalities and super talented people. But in a world where talent has become the scarcer resource, the ability to actually engage with a team, a very different group of people, is something that can make a difference. And, you know, you had to make the transition from going from an environment like the BCG environment where you know, to a certain extent, people are very similar. They have followed fairly similar paths to being a consultant or a manager. They've come from, you know, 20 colleges in America and 10 business school, you know, and, and three companies to a, a place like Digitas, where even though you were only, you were running the strategy team, you were actually interacting with people from completely different skill set, technology people, creative people, you know, account people, and people coming from a much broader background than what you would find in a top consulting firm. How did you navigate the change and what are some of the things that helped you being successful in a different environment? It's a great question, Dino. And it was, it was challenging. When I first joined Digitas, 
you know, my first six months or so, I was dealing with an amazing diversity of people, um, not just in the typical dimensions of race, gender, you know, it was diversity of experience, of skills, of just even language, the way people used words was different. Terminology was different. And for the first six months, really understanding what people were trying to tell me, understanding what they needed, where I was doing things that were running counter to them. And I'll give you just a really good example. The technology team always felt that they were last that we would come up with a strategy, a creative design, everything, and then we toss it over to the technology team and said, you got to build this. And time had ticked away and their time would be more compressed. And they didn't like that. And so I found myself naturally at the beginning falling into that based on assumptions and kind of what I saw around me. But it was really important to me to understand where they were coming from. Um, and I felt, okay, every time I talked to them, I learned something. Okay, this is stuff I don't know. And there's absolutely no way I'm going to be successful if I stay in my bubble. Plus, I'm curious. I'm just naturally curious. I want to understand what they do. I think if I understand their mindsets, it'll make me better. It'll make them better. We'll create a better product all around. So, I did invest time, lunches, traveling on the road with, with folks, just asking a ton of questions. Um, one of the primary things that I always keep in mind is before you show your own expertise, you've got to diagnose the situation around you. You've got to ask questions. You've got to investigate. You've got to understand because what right do you have to say anything until you understand the context you're in? So... I did. I asked lots of questions and tried to figure out what I could do better to help them and really create a tighter team across the board. Um, it paid off. I built amazing relationships over the years there, but it was a hard slap in the face at the beginning because there was such a difference in people. Um, and then the key was to take that and say, this is a learning opportunity. This is, you know, this is stuff I don't know. Um, so I better start to connect with them. They seem very talented in what they do. And of course, the more I got to know folks, just the more we clicked and the more we were able to do together. As somebody who has built a lot of teams, what are some of the leadership traits that you look for in people that you bring on your teams? One of the biggest is humility. Um, so you've got to be willing to listen. Um, you've got to ask questions. As I, just building on what I said before, you've got to ask questions, really listen carefully, not dominate the discussion, have good questions, which show that you're listening, but then turn things around into motivating guidance. Um, as opposed to just expertise, you've got to turn it around to get people, again, it comes back to passion, comes back to oxygen. You've got to use your insight and expertise to get people interested and motivated to move forward in the path you just ultimately as a leader, you are going to be the one who has to decide. 
as much as you may want to think you can create consensus and stuff, ultimately, in the vast number of situations, there is a decision that just simply has to be made. And if you as a leader don't make that decision, people are lost. They feel they're at cross purposes. They don't necessarily understand what their priorities are. So you do have to get there. But you have to get there by listening, by asking questions, get the data, then make it clear what your position is, and then turn that into something that you can provide, you can generate energy out of. Um, I think those are the things, and you've got to be curious and inquisitive. And then the last thing is you also have to think a few steps ahead. The other thing about a leader is you've got to have a sense of what's going to be around the corner and not just, it's important to be in the moment and understand what's happening in the moment, but you do have to think about two steps forward. If we do this, let's play this out. Sometimes you have to do that in your own head and you're rattling around in that. And then once you come up with that, you got to make that transparent and put it on the table. But you do, a really good leader has to have that sense of implications. And what's the second order effect of of if we do that? Because teams don't want to get blindsided later. They want to know that they're being led down a path where they can all walk. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and had not heard episodes one through four, go listen to the full episodes. Then tell your friends that they should all listen to the show and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Good Pods or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a stellar rating or review. Stay tuned because as usual, at the end of the credits, I will play a fabulous song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. If you want more information on the guests, go to the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also plays keyboards, drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, a song from Susan Cattaneo's second album, Heaven to Heartache. This song is a fabulous vocal performance. It's a ballad called Handle with Care. Enjoy. Be kind when you kiss me Or hold me real close The gentler the touch brings The blush to the rose Cradle my heart And I'll always be there Hold me, unfold me Handle with care I've danced close to love My heels floating on hope I've dangled from dreams While despair held the road My soul has been torn Beyond repair 
reminds us we stand face to face You lean in to kiss me A moment of grace Time holds its breath It feels just like a prayer Save me, I'm waiting Hold me, unfold 